Good morning again, everybody. Welcome to Renew. Hey, we, uh, we only have three more weeks in the book, or books of Ezra and Nehemiah, even though I stress that it's only one book, but that's what the Bible says, but that's okay. They changed it after a while. So with that said, um, if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to be reading Nehemiah 10, verses 28 through 38. We're going to skip those names. We'll talk about them too, but we're not going to read them. I'm not going to read them to you. So Nehemiah 10, starting at verse 28, reads, Then the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the pagan people of the land in order to obey the law of God together with their wives, sons, daughters, and all who were old enough to understand, joined their leaders and bound themselves with an oath. They swore a curse on themselves if they failed to obey the law of God as issued by his servant Moses. They solemnly promised to carefully follow all of the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. And it reads, we promise not to let our daughters marry the pagan people of the land and not to let our sons marry their daughters. We also promise that if the people of the land should bring any merchandise or grain to be sold on the Sabbath or any other holy day, we will refuse to buy it. Every seventh year, we will let our land rest and we will cancel all the debts owed to us. In addition, we promise to obey the command to pay the annual temple tax of one-eighth of an ounce of silver for the care of the temple of our God. This will provide for the bread of the presence, for the regular grain offering and burnt offerings, for the offering of the Sabbaths, the new moon celebrations and the annual, annual festivals, for the holy offerings and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. It will be provided for everything necessary for the work of the temple of our God. We have cast sacred lots to determine when at regular times each year the families of the priests, Levites, and the common people should bring wood to God's temple to be burned on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We promise to bring the first part of every harvest to the Lord's temple year after year, whether it be a crop from the soil or from our fruit trees. We agree to give God our oldest sons and firstborn of all of our herds and flocks as prescribed in the law. We will present them to the priests who minister in the temple of our God. We will store the produce in the storerooms of the temple of our God. We will bring the best of our flour and other grain offerings, the best of our fruit, the best of our wine and olive oil. And we promise to bring to the Levites a tenth of everything our land produces. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in our rural towns. A priest, a descendant of Aaron, will be with the Levites as they receive these tithes, and a tenth of all that is collected as tithes will be delivered by the Levites to the temple of our God and placed in storerooms. The people and the Levites must bring these offerings of grain, new wine, and olive oil into storerooms and place them in the sacred containers near the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers. We promise together not to neglect the temple of our God. Let's pray, God. Thank you for this time that we have together. Together, um, to worship you, we are so thankful for the freedom to do that in your spirit, Lord, and where we live. God, we just thank you. We thank you for your word and your Holy Spirit that lives in us, those who put our trust in you, to guide us, to illuminate the scripture for our understanding, and so we can grow. We thank you for the examples that we've read here in Ezra and Nehemiah over the last several months, and as we're gaining ground to come to a close, we just pray that it's not just the book of the Bible. Uh, but it's for your glory to teach us in the Old Testament to you. 
So Lord, use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. I carefully give you the glory. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So last week, we watched as the entire nation of the Israelites confessed sin openly. And if you recall, if you were here, I asked the question, what if the way that you were feeling represented, was represented by the way you got dressed this morning? And we discussed how they dressed in sackcloth and they put ashes on their head and they were showing that they were truly distraught over their sin. So we, we now move from chapter 9 to chapter 10. And what we've seen uh, is the whole community coming together and admitting sin together. And as the young adults group, life group met last week, we all decided that we're just going to openly confess all of our sins all of the time. That's not true. It didn't happen. But just the importance of how, import, the importance of confessing our sin first to God and then whoever we had sinned against or wrong. And what we're seeing here is the confession of sin corporately is important, but it, it does not take away the importance of confessing sin individually. But it's an extension of a personal relationship with God. And, and once you confess sin and dedicate your life or rededicate your life or recommit your life or commit your life, whatever language you use growing up or you use today, that's one thing just to con- confess your sin. It's another thing altogether to put a stake in the ground and say, no more. We're not doing this anymore. Now, granted, we won't be perfect. I'm not perfect, but to say and put a stake in the ground and say, that's it, that was in the past, regardless of the direction, we're not going that direction. We are now moving forward in him. By God's grace, we're going to live for him. And that's what the whole community is doing, and they're coming together and saying, we're committed. In the early 1700s, I appreciated going back this week, reading Jonathan Edwards, if you haven't read any of his books, I recommend it. He, just the quick synopsis of his life, he was a pastor, a theologian, and he loved the Lord and he loved the people, so much so that he started a couple of churches, one church in particular, there was an issue and, and he would not back down from the community or even members of his church, so much so that the church he started kicked him out, but he didn't care. He just was so resolved to live for Christ. So he wrote resolutions. And what he did is he wrote 70 resolutions and his desire to live. And I'm not going to read all 70 of them. You can find it online and read them. But he kept adding to it as he continued to grow in the Lord. He, he kept adding to the list of just the way he was going to live his life. Now, for anyone in here who do not like lists because it sounds legalistic, you're right. But some of us need lists to keep us. Some of us can drive down the road and we don't need a little whenever you drift off in the road. Some of us need those. Anybody else need those? Thank you for being honest. Have you ever noticed that if you rear to the right, it goes, but if you rear to the left, it goes, you can play a song back and forth. Some of us need those. And I guess some of you need those too. 
But for those of you who just cannot stand lists because it reminds you of a time of legalism in your life, or you really fight that, this perhaps is not for you. But regardless, God has a desire for us to be holy. He has a desire for us to be more like him every day through his spirit. And no, again, we're not going to make it right. We're not going to hit it. And Jonathan Edwards knew that he needed a list. So I'm just going to read his introduction, and perhaps I really enjoy Jonathan Edwards for a lot because I see the way that he writes, and I am encouraged by the way that I'm all over the place, too. But this is what he writes. Me, Jonathan Edwards. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Side note, that's his way out of legalism. If this isn't what you want anymore, God, let me know. And then he put a little note with a little asterisk that says, remember to read these resolutions once a week. And number one, this is what he wrote, and I'll just read the first one. Resolve that I will do whatever whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with and how many and how great soever. This is where we land, the response to what must be done after confession of sin. All that to say in old English, I want to do whatever God wants me to do, and I want to help those around me. And I resolve to do them even when I don't want to, when it's difficult. And whenever I face difficulties, because I know there will be difficulties, regardless of how many and how often, I want to do it with great resolve. And this is where we land with the Israelites. They confess their sin and now they are promising to put a stake in the ground. This is what we're going to do from now on. So let's just consider this real quick. Now, I did skip the first few verses um, simply because there's 84 names and I'd still be reading them incorrectly to you. And I didn't skip them because they're not important. Their names are important. I did look into several of them just to see if I can find a link to who they were, who their ancestors were, and there were a few that I recognize. And as I was reading through it, I write out my sermon and I write out my bullet points. I go back through and read several commentary to make sure I'm not a heretic. That's God's honest truth. And I appreciated what David Guzik wrote. He was the pastor, Calvary Chapel in Santa Barbara, and has a a great commentary. He wrote this, uh, the names are important. Who cares about these names? The people whose names are there care. And he goes on to say, God wants your name to be part of the new covenant. He wants your name to be in the book of life. Who cares? God cares, and so will you. And again, the names that we may struggle with, um, they are important. 
Because really the representation of all these names coming together, all 84, didn't represent only 84. They represented 84 different people within the Israelite clan. It's almost as if, it's just like voting. We all vote for someone and that one person represents the whole county, the whole whatever. So these 84 names didn't just represent themselves. They represented the whole community coming together. And all of them. Which is hard to imagine. I, however many people are here this morning, it would be difficult for, to get all of us to do one thing, wouldn't it? Let's all go and eat, and then we're going to fight. Where are we going to go eat? Let's all, but they all resolve to do this. They all confess their sin, and they all resolve to do this. And again, it's because God cares so much for his people. And they were living under the covenant. And, and this covenant is, is not the covenant that we live in now under Jesus' blood, which is a way better covenant. The Old Testament covenant is a lot of earning and deserving, and you do this and I'll do that. We even read that if we don't do this, uh, you can curse us. That's what he said. You, you can curse us. Bless us or curse us. And that's just over and over again. We just see back in the Old Testament, further back in the Old Testament during Exodus when they were wandering around, wandering around, it was blessing, cursing, blessing, cursing. Now under the new covenant, believing is receiving God's grace. It's not work-based, reward-based covenant. We don't live under that anymore. But whenever he says, we promise to do this, commands, regulations, and decree, if you look at verse 29, it said, they joined their leaders and bound themselves with an oath. That bound with an oath is a covenant, a blood covenant. We'll talk about that in a moment. They swore a curse on themselves if they failed to obey the law of God issued by Moses. Now, curse. Now, I don't know anyone personally who's ever said, God, if I do this, great. If I don't do this, then curse me. I, I, I hope don't do that. But really... <clears throat> excuse me, what we tend to do honestly is we kind of do some things. Sometimes, have you ever prayed, God, do whatever it takes to get me to a better place? It's not quite the same, but it's almost saying, God, do whatever you want because I'm serious about this. Anyone ever make a deal with God? If my team wins tonight, I promise I'll go to church tomorrow. Anyone ever did that? A liar. You did. <laughs> Or whatever it is whenever you're a kid. If you help me get an A, or for those who are really smart but don't really study really hard and say, okay, all I need is a 72.5% on the test and I pass. God, if I get that, I'm yours. It's basically that. And of course, we're not asking for a curse because what it was saying is when they swore this oath, it was a blood oath. And in the Old Testament, what a blood oath was is, is coming together in an agreement, we would take an animal and we cut it in half from forehead all the way down. And then we would spread it apart and then both, if it's me and Natalie, let's say, making a covenant, we would both walk in between these two, these two halves of the animal with our garments and everything on with the hope that blood would get on our garment. And that was, we promised to do what we said we we're going to do and if we don't, cut us in half like an animal. That was the curse and the promise. That's gross. That's scary. We no longer live under those covenant because Jesus Christ, his blood shed for us to atone not only for the sins we had committed, that we've committed and will commit. He's taken it all. 
But in the Old Testament, this is how serious they were taking their rededication. We promise, Lord, we solemnly promise to carefully follow all the commands, regulations, and decree. And to belabor this just a little bit more, they're saying we all promise, not just I will promise. Now, there's one thing when I make a promise and I'm completely in charge if I do it or not. I promise I will. But if I have to make a promise that included everybody else, that's scary. I can trust me, but maybe not you. And actually, I can't trust me very well. But this is, this is what they are promising to do. So I broke down the three main areas that they promise, and we'll talk about them. So if you're a note taker, I did title this recommitted. So the three areas that they recommitted, they, the first one they committed, and you'll see that in verse 30, is they recommitted their family's faith. They recommitted their family's faith. The second one, in verse 31, they recommitted their observance of the Sabbath. And finally, in verses 32 through 37, they recommitted their giving to the temple. And we'll walk through that. Now, up front, I'm going to just talk about giving to the temple. If you're new to Renew, or if you've been here for a long time, regardless, uh, you'll know that we do not come up and some churches you may have experienced will come up and there'll be a time to receive tithes and offering. We don't do that here at Renew because we do believe it's important to give unto God through the church that you serve at and that you call at home. We don't have membership. We're a family. And it is important. But yet, we don't want you to put the pressure because we are not in the Old Testament, but we're in the New Testament. And the New Testament says, be a, a cheerful giver. And we'll talk about that. But there have been some people who have asked, how can I give? And just so you know, just up front so I don't forget, we have collection boxes you can give online and you can sell it to our P.O. box. Uh, but at no time, we're, we're going to stand up here and say, give us your tithes and offering. We will let you know if there's a need. We've done that before with um, some of our missionaries, our impact partners. Hey, they need a car. They need this. Do you want to join us? Because ultimately, doing the fundraising and doing all that, we don't want to get out in front of what God has for us. That's why whenever we moved into the building, we used the savings that we had. And people were so, you guys were so kind to donate your time, offering skills, ability, and money. So just in case I don't say that, when we talk about the Old Testament, it's a little bit different, but there is ties. Um, so let's, let's move on with that. So the first one, let's look at how they recommitted their family faith. Now verse 30 says... We promise not to let our daughters marry the pagan people of the land and not to let our sons marry their daughters. That sounds pretty straightforward because they just said that they had separated themselves from the pagans. We read that last week, again this week. And for anyone in here saying, oh, that's hard. Why are they separating themselves? Why are they pulling away? I thought we were supposed to be the light of the world. Yes, but caution your relationships, specifically the relationships that you come into a covenant with marriage. I'm not saying if your neighbor or your friends do not have faith, don't do anything with them. This is very specific. We promise not to let our daughters marry the pagan and the sons not to marry them. Four, five chapters ago, we read how they had already married into several of the different nations around, and instead of bringing them to God, they went and ran to their God, 
the false idols. Even King Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, fell into temptation, built altars for false gods because of all of the women that he married. So how do you recommit your family's faith for us? Now, also it's important to note that at this time it was arranged marriages. You did not marry out of love. And for the romantic in here, you're like, oh, but what about Romeo and Juliet? It was arranged marriage. And the reason is because most of it was, for the Jewish people, it was to continue to keep the bloodline for Christ. No one knew which bloodline specifically was going to come from Christ. They were already in eager anticipation, waiting to see what happened. But they were marrying other people in faith. So what would it mean for us today? How can we recommit our family's faith? And just, just here's a couple of notes that I wrote down, at least that we attempt to do. We point to Jesus every chance we get. We point to Jesus every chance we get, which also includes, which also means that we attempt to be, and when I say we, Allie and I, we attempt to be the first ones to apologize to them. We also try to be as open and upfront about the sins in our life. We're also committed to reading God's word as a family and as a couple. Now, before I get too far along, do we do this every time perfectly? No. Does sometime the old man in me falls asleep before everything happens? Yes. But that's what a commitment is. For us as Christians, for us as followers, that's what we're committed to, and that's the standard. And no, we're not going to meet it every time. We talked about the bullseye and the arrows last time. But that doesn't mean we lower the standard because we can't meet it. That means we ask God to raise us up to that standard. Some of the other things that I wrote down that's important, and you can write your own list when you go home or at lunch. Be committed to a local church. And you're like, well, duh, you're a pastor. You have to be here. Well, duh, yeah, I do. But so do you. And it doesn't have to be renewed church, but it has to be a Bible-preaching church. Be committed. I'm not going to tell you what that commitment means, but you know what it means. I will make some suggestions. It means regular attendance, looking for places to serve, looking for an opportunity to care, and loving God. That's why we put so much emphasis in life groups. You shouldn't do life alone. So that's what it looked for us, but for the Old Testament, what it looked like is, oh, it would be convenient if my daughter married that guy because he owns a lot of land, and if, if we can work out some transaction where they get married, we'll get along, I'll get some of the land, and it'll work out. But they were willing to do it. And they had already seen over and over and over again that this was a sin that they repeated over and over and over again. This was a hereditary sin, if you will. This was one that just as a nation, they just did not get right. Whatever convenient, convenience it was, we took that instead of protecting our sons and daughters. Going back to perhaps some of our lists that we can consider about recommitting our faith in our families is showing them the way of the Lord, pointing out what is good and what is bad, being honest with them. Don't let them choose as a young child what they eat for dinner. My five-year-old would eat ice cream for dinner every day. So would I every day. But then we start to slide back and 
We don't want to push too hard. And, and, and I'm only coming from a place that, as a pastor for, full-time pastor for 12 years, I've done a lot of pastoral counseling, and a lot of the issues that show up in home is not a clear, dedicated line of this is what God expects of us. So go through the scripture and come up with your own list. But again, for the Israelites, this was not marrying pagan women or pagan men. Verse 31, to recommit their lives, they obs- the observance of the Sabbath. They recommitted their observance of the Sabbath. Now there's two reasons why they were in exile originally. For 70 years when the Babylonians took over and then the Persians came in and took over and then gave them back their land for 70 years. God told him through Jeremiah, you're not keeping the Sabbath, which means not just Shabbat, not just Saturday, which they weren't doing. It also meant that every seven years they were not letting the land rest, which means they weren't planting anything or harvesting anything. They just let the land rest. And the third thing they weren't doing is they weren't forgiving debts. You were allowed to keep a debt for seven years. After that, you erased all debts, all of them which also include forgiveness of people. But they did not do that, so God was keeping track of it, and it added up to 70 years that they did not, a total of 70 years, they did not rest or give the land rest. And we've talked about that over a couple of times, so I won't talk about necessarily the sin of it all, but let's see what they promised about it, and we'll bring that through. Verse 31, we also promise that if the people of the land should bring any merchandise or grain to be sold on the Sabbath or any other holy day, we refuse to buy it. Every seventh year, we will let our land rest and we will cancel all debts owed to us. That's right there from the Levitical law and right from Exodus, exactly what God told Moses to tell the people. So what was happening is, is they were very specific in what they needed to do. Remember that guardrail whenever you're driving, they knew This is what they needed to do because they would say, we promise we'll take a day of rest, which really meant a day with God. And no, we're not under the Old Testament where we have to do it on Saturday, but we do need to spend time with God. So what they were doing is they would would rest until someone came into town and say, hey, I'll make you a good deal. You know what? The shop's open. That sounds good. We'll open it up. Growing up, there was two Jewish families a couple streets over, and what I found interesting and that I did not comprehend as a young boy is I would see them all the time. After school, we would all play football on the street, called it sideline pop, and you try not to run into a tree if you got hit. We all played together, but there was two Jewish families, and right Friday around 3.30, they would disappear, and we thought, that's weird, and then we wouldn't see them until Saturday night, and they'd come running and say, well, what's the score? We're... And I thought it was weird. I didn't understand. But they were being set apart. They took the Sabbath seriously. So for them, that meant from sundown on Friday afternoon to sundown Saturday afternoon, they would rest. They would be with God. They would be as a family. There was all these rules of what they could and couldn't do. They couldn't tie a knot in a rope. They couldn't rescue. And Jesus later on in the... Uh, New Testament, five different times the Pharisees are picking on him for doing something on the Sabbath. So it's not that you have to keep it on this day this way, but you needed to find time to rest. But secondly, don't take shortcuts in what you promise. And that's what they were doing. They were taking shortcuts. So they said, for now on, we will refuse to buy it, even if it's a good deal. 
So you can imagine, hey, you can get this for 30% off. Nope, sorry. You can get this off 50% off, but only today. Okay, go in the back. We'll, we'll buy it. The other thing is every seventh year, we would let our land rest and we would cancel all debts owed to us. So every seven years, no planting. I know that there are many of you who are in farmers, agriculture. Can you imagine every seven year not planting something? Not harvesting? You just give the ground a break? Why would they do that? Why would God demand that? And it was a demand. It was a command. Why would he do that? Because when you get successful, you start thinking that you can do it on your own. And this was a way of God's reminder that it's him. He's the one who brings the rain. He's the one who sprouts the crop. He's the one who takes care of it. Now, for those of you who are not in agriculture, this meant you were to rest, so much so that some people would take an entire year off. Now, who wants a year vacation? Sign me up. But it wasn't for that. It wasn't for just specific rest. It was a reminder to come back to God a reminder that he is the source that sustains us. You remember when you were 16 years old and you got a job and whatever it was, the minimum wage, and you made like 50 cents over it and you thought you were rich? I did, and I thought, man, if one day, and I was sweeping a shop, I think I was making 4.75, I thought I was rich. And I thought, one day if I make 5.50, I'll have everything I ever wanted. I'm ready to go. And then I got to that 550 and I thought, hey, you know what? 650 looks pretty good. And you know what even got worse is then whenever they hired the new guy at seven bucks, it's like he doesn't know anything. And I have to train him. See, that's what happens is we just, here's what we have. Here's what God's blessed us with, but we just want a little bit more, a little bit more. And this is a reminder. And also, uh, back in chapter nine, Nehemiah, remember they had the, the week of the booth, the celebration of the booth where they went out to the desert or on the top of their homes and they just camped out trusting God completely for a whole week that God would supply everything. This was it to the max. We will trust you for a year and we will also cancel all debts owed to us. And the reason why, it's quite simple, we want to be reminded, the Israelites wanted to be reminded that they should not own anyone. Slavery was such a big thing. They came out of Egypt. Now they've come out of Babylonian captivity, but yet in their own ways, they were keeping people in debt. So God said, forgive them. Now, I know there's a lot of problems there that you're thinking of. Well, people are just going to run up debt, and then every seven years, they get a restart, it's not fair, but really this is, this is between the family to not hold it. So what would it look like for modern day? I'm not going to tell you you have to take 24 hours off in a week. I'm not going to tell you that you have to take a year off every sev- on the seventh year. I'm not going to tell you any of that. I'm simply going to remind you that when you put that stake in the ground and say, Lord, I'm going to spend more time with you, do it. And you do need rest. And that phone call and that email and that text message and that last business transaction can wait. But whatever that looks like for you, do it. And I can't tell you what the seventh year rest would look like, but I would recommend 
Um, from A.W. Tozer, his recommendation is every day find an hour with the Lord. Every week find a day. Every year find a week. And that's pretty good. And then consider what it means to rest. Because on the seventh day, we read in Genesis, God rested. Sabbath, which actually means he was with his creation. And then cancel your debts. Specifically, if there's unforgiveness in your heart towards anyone, do it right away. Don't wait for the seventh year. If there's a way that you could bless someone that owes you, then do it. But this was the commitment that they were doing. This was, and if you remember three chapters ago when they were building the walls, they said we can no longer build the walls because we are being taxed so heavily we can't afford it. We can't, we're not doing our vineyard so we can't pay it. We're just going in debt and we're actually selling off our daughters. So they knew that this was a problem. They were keeping each other in bondage. And then finally, their promise, their giving to the temple. And this is a little bit longer. This is verse 32 through 37. It says, in addition, we promise to obey the command to pay the annual temple tax of one-eighth of an ounce or one-third of a shekel, probably, maybe in some of your translation, for the care of the temple of our God. So this is actually a lower cost than it originally was in the, in the Mosaic Law. In Exodus and Leviticus, it talks about paying a half a shekel. And the reason why simply was they couldn't afford it. So they were reasonable. This is not their tithes and offering. This was just their tax to the church. Can you imagine if you had to pay taxes to the government and to the church? But this is what it was. This was the tax that they had to pay. So they promised that they were going to do that. Because if you, re- if you remember, they haven't had a temple in 70 years. And I would imagine the dreams are, oh, one day when we get it, we promise we'll do everything we're supposed to do. Now they get to do what everything they promised they would do. So they promised it to take care of the temple for our God. And then it says specifically what this tax will pay for. This will provide the bread for the, of the presence. So every, every other day, depending on the holiday, they, the high priest would come and break the bread, set it on the table. That was for God to show, breaking a bread. That's why later on Jesus breaks the bread. This is a new covenant I give you. That was the bread of the presence. For the regular grain offering and burnt offering, different offerings were given over for different sins. This was to pay for it, to afford to do it. Uh, The offerings of the Sabbath, the new moon celebrations, that's the celebration that God is keeping everything in motion. The annual festivals, that's all of the festivals that we had mentioned back a couple of weeks ago. And for the holy offerings and for the sin offering to make atonement for Israel, we're going to pay that up front. It will provide for everything necessary for the work of the temple of our God. It's great we have a temple, it's great that we have walls, but now it needs to be functional. And and it's really hard to modernize this because at the onset you would almost say, please pay this tax so we can keep the lights on. But the lights here are not what forgives our sins, it's only Christ. So we don't live in a sacrificial system any longer, so it's kind of hard to to, uh, comprehend and understand, perhaps for me to appreciate this. But in order for this to be done, they had to pay this tax. And this was not their best. This was just the tax to help that all come together. Then then they go on, and and, and it says that in verse 34, they they cast out sacred lots to determine when to do this. At regular times, each year, the families of the priests 
Levites and the common people should bring the wood to the God's temple to burn on the altar for the Lord. Our God is written in the law. They needed to have wood to burn. So we would cast lots. It's just like taking a draw, and it would be this family's turn to bring the wood, this family's turn, this family's turn, this family's turn. Because the fire had to be burning every single day, all day long, just in case someone wanted to make a burnt offering. They would give it to the priest. Just in case there was a sin. For us, we confessed our sin immediately, and we were forgiven. But here, they had to do something. So this was the offering. And here's the part that I kind of want to camp out at in verse 35. It says, we promise to bring the first part of our harvest to the Lord's temple every year, whether that be a crop from the soil or our first fruits. The first part, the first thing that we get, we want to give it to you. And we agree to give God our oldest sons and our firstborn to all of our herds and flocks as they prescribed in the law. We will present them to the priest. So to rewind, originally God's plan at the very beginning was each family, when they had the firstborn son, would be dedicated to the temple. And that son would grow up and become a priest. And eventually perhaps a high priest. That was God's original plan for the order of priest. However, if you remember back in Exodus when Moses was away and the people just got bored and they didn't know what to do, they made the golden calf and everyone started worshiping the golden calf. The only tribe that didn't worship the golden calf were the Levites. So then God came and said, all right, the Levites will be the only ones who will be the priests. No longer will you have to dedicate, each family dedicate their eldest son to be a priest. Only the Levites get to do this. And you're like, Okay, what does it have to do? It also means the Levites were never allowed to own land. They would never be allowed the promised land. They would be allowed to be in it and only in the temple. So from now on, they have these Levites, and these Levites would perform all of the ceremonies, and they were the ones that were going to do that. Now, what did it mean for a firstborn child to be redeemed? It meant you would come and pay the five shekels to be redeemed. Where else do we remember reading that a firstborn son was brought to the temple? Christ. And what did they pay? Not five shekels, but two turtle doves, two doves, the same value of five shekels. But it, it's much more than that. That's just on the surface. Because if the Levites were separated, they were separated because they were the only ones who didn't worship the calf, the golden calf. They then became the mediating tribe. They became the mediators. The Lord had already revealed in the book of Exodus that the Levites would not inherit in any land, like I mentioned, that they would be there always. So now when you go back and read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and you hear all the battles, you'll see that all of the other tribes send out people to go fight. Where are the Levites? At the temple. They are mediating on our behalf. They are the way that the Israelites would, here's our sacrifice, go burn it. And then on the one year, the day of atonement, go into the Holy of Holies. But it even goes more than that because the Levites were the prefigure or the showing of the coming of Christ who stands between the presence or mediates for us. See, God all along throughout the Old Testament is always pointing to Jesus Christ. He's always pointing that I'm going to have a way to get you out of this sin. 
And if there were not a mediator between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, the just wrath of God would totally be poured out. And it is poured out on Christ instead. So again, whenever it says the men of war would go and fight, it would say the temples were mediating, they would dwell in the midst of the people. And then if you wanna go a bit further, because I love long rabbit trails, when in John's gospel, he calls Jesus, he always referred to Jesus whenever he is in a group, in the midst of his people, which also can translate in the mediation of his people. And when Christ was crucified, he was placed between the two thieves. So in the Gospel of John, again, he writes that Jesus is the center of the thieves. He's in the center. In Revelation, it talks about Christ as the lamb in the center of heaven when the redeemed surrounding them singing, holy, holy, holy. See, the plan of restoration began way back in Eden. We go a little bit further. You know when God kicked Adam and Eve out and he put those two cherubim with the flaming swords? He put him on the east end of Eden. He protected them. He protected the dwelling place. The Christ, the lion, the tribe of Judah is the one who will open that east gate. Right now the east gate is closed in Jerusalem. The Jews are waiting for the Messiah and Christians are waiting for his return. He's making a way back. So that's why they're saying we will no longer have to surrender our oldest son to be a priest, but we are going to surrender our oldest son unto you. It goes back to their promise. We promise not to let our daughters marry pagan people of the land, and we promise not to let the sons marry their daughters. We're making this oath, and we're starting with when they're first born. And the reason the firstborn had to be dedicated to the temple with money, because it costs something to be redeemed. It costs Christ everything. And here's the reason why it's all important is Christ right now is our mediator. We no longer need priest. You don't need me or any other pastor to come to Christ. Jesus paid that all to make a way. So then they give a list of all the things that they're going to agree. They're going to give their firstborn sons, their herds. Um, I just want to point out quickly, you notice that they always says the best of our, the best of our, in verse 37 it says, we will store the produce in the storerooms of the temple of our God. We will bring the best of our flour and other grain offerings, the best of our fruit, the best of our new wine and olive oil. And we promise to bring the Levites a tenth of everything our land produces for the Levites who collect the tithes of all of our rural towns. The best, the best, the best, the best. So to modernize it, to consider what it means, do you give God your best and everything? And one of the things that I have been working on over the years is do I give God the best of my day? Meaning to say, if you're a morning person, is that the time that you give to God? Are you, if you're a night person, is that the best time? Are you more of a between 2.30 and 3.15? Is that the best part of your day? Do you give God your best? Because it's easy to go through the list and say, yeah, I give to God, I give to the church, yeah, I, I pray, but is it your best? Do you give your best effort when you're praying, when do you give your best effort when you're reading? Now, don't get me wrong. There are some days that I read my devotion, and if you ask me two minutes later what I read, I could say, I don't even remember reading. 
There have been a great many times that I prayed like this, dear God, thank you for, and I'm out. And then I wake up in the middle of the night and I say, I'm so sorry, God, I didn't mean it. What did I, what did I not mean? But the best, and really, here's the note that I wrote down for myself, the best comes from my heart. That's it, the best comes from my heart. Not what makes me look good, what, what others mention, what accolades I get, but the best. Do I give the best? And of course, I don't hit the mark every time, and if you're like me, you beat yourself up more than you pat yourself on the back, but do you give your best? Because right here and right now, the Israelites are saying, we are, we are putting that stake in the ground, we are moving forward, we are going to give you the best, because we know we haven't been doing a good job of that. Then they go in and do uh, promise to give a tenth of everything of our land produces, starting with the best. And then for anyone in here who struggles with giving, as I mentioned up front, we won't ask, but it is important. And you don't give, so you get blessed, none of that crazy nonsense. I I was talking earlier this week with a friend, and we were just talking about it's a blessing just to do what God wants you to do. Not just in your giving, but in all things. Even if you don't get anything out of it. Even, even the giving, whatever the best is. I mean, if you have a hard time with giving of any kind, ask someone who does a good job giving what it means. And it's not to compare. It's just, it's giving back to God 10% of what he already gave you, the 100% already. I mean, there's many times, and, and again, I don't talk about giving very often, but when the passages come up, I need to. There was a time specifically, I remember when Nellie and I, <clears throat> we went into full-time ministry, and this is not to brag, but we gave up, we took basically a 70% pay cut to go into full-time ministry, whatever that means. And we were ready, and we were prepared for it, and then we did it for a couple of years in Oregon, and we moved to Kansas City, and I remember specifically one time when we were monetarily poor, and I mean not when you were counting your dollar bills, it's when you were counting your pennies. And I don't know if you've ever been in that place, but it's a good place to have been, because I appreciate it. And I remember specifically, if we don't give our tithe, we can afford this, but since Nally's way faithful than me, she didn't let me do it. But so, but so we gave, and I remember just thinking, man, how are things going to get paid for? How are we going to eat more than top ramen, the college diet? But you know, someone gave us a check, and I'm not saying that you will be blessed for that. There's one time specifically, sorry, Ryder, we stole from your piggy bank <laughs> <clears throat> to pay for groceries. But what I've seen is God is faithful. We've, we have been poor, but never poor in him. Just be faithful. And I'm not gonna tell you what to give, how much to give, where to give it. It all belongs to God. And if you start from that place, you will be much better for it. See, the sin that's defeated in Nehemiah here. We're all celebrating, and this is all exciting, and, and I love a good story when people put a stake in the ground or a rock in the river. I don't know if you've ever been to a camp when you hammered in a stake and you wrote your name when you 
accepted Christ. There's one outside of Big Bear that probably still has my name on it. And I love stories like this. And in the Old Testament, you just see all of the craziness and you just think, man, I'm glad I don't live in the Old Testament. But the spoiler alert is in two chapters, we're going to end where the entire nation of Israel turned their back on this. They take shortcuts. I won't spoiler alert it for you. But next week, we're going to talk about the dedication of the wall. And then in the following week, we're going to talk about they just stop slowly, not all at once. That's usually how sin jumps in. Sin doesn't necessarily all just happens. It just kind of slows down. And whenever I read the Old Testament, I do get a little sad because I just see the cycle of sin over and over again. We promise, curse us, and then they sin again. We promise, we promise. And really... It's because God hadn't sent his son yet. The Nehemiah close and with Malachi, they end up at the same time, but in the order of our Bible, Malachi, but it ends, and then God is silent for hundreds of years until he sends his son. That cycle of sin just happened over and over again, and there was no hope for these people. When you read this, yeah, they promised to do it, but there's no change of heart. The, the atoning sacrifices that they did with these animals and these covenants only got them so far. Just like the Levite priests were the, the prequel, the coming of Christ, we have Christ to pay the cost of our sins. and We have victory in Christ, and we are not bound to sin. One of the saddest things to see is a believer in Christ, someone who claims to be a believer in Christ, just live in sin because they feel there's no hope. In Ezekiel, he talks about, God says, I've come to give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'm going to take out that stony heart and put in a heart of flesh. And one day, there'll be no more sin. When either Christ calls us home or he returns. But until that, we do live in sin, but we do not have to live under the bondage of sin of repeat over and over again. And no, I'm not talking about money or I'm not talking about the Sabbath. I'm not even talking about our family. Just you as an individual, me as an individual, we have hope in Christ. We don't have to do all of these things, these rels. We have Christ, the true mediator. Because just as it costs something to dedicate the sun to the temple, just like it costs the best of the flower, the best of the grains, God gave up the very best, Christ, for our sins. Hallelujah, that we live in the blood of Christ. The close, I read you the first resolute that Jonathan Edwards stated. I wanted to read his last four to you. This was a list that he didn't start off with 70. He started off with 10. And week by week, year by year, month by month, he just added as the Lord prompted him. And here is... His resolution, 67, 68, 69, and 70. 67, he said, I resolve after afflictions to inquire what am I the better man for them? What good have I got by them? And what I might have got by them? Essentially, when bad things happen, how have I grown? 68, I resolve to confess frankly to myself 
all that which I find in myself, either infirmity or sin. And if it be what concerns religion, also to confess the whole case to God and implore needed help. When I sin, I'm going to confess immediately. And if I need help, I'm going to ask. 69, I resolve always to do that, which I shall wish I had done when I see others do it. When I see someone do something that's godly and it's inspiring to me, I'm going to try to do it. And finally, 70, let there be something of benevolence in all that I speak. Let me speak with kindness. And then he ends and he writes at the very end, and I'll just say it in my form. I'm, I'm going to resolve all these onto the Lord, not because I have to, but because I want to, and I only want to because of Christ. So when we put this stake in the ground, it's we're doing it because of Christ, because he's changed our heart, because there's hope in him. So I invite you this morning just to consider, like me, if there's ever been a stake in the ground that you've had to pick up and put over and over again, give that over to God. And for anyone in here who doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, I'd love to talk to you about it. And as we see these Israelites try their best and live in this cycle of sin, we only have to praise God that he hasn't given up and he sent his son. So that way we can be resolved to live in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you for the dedication of these Israelites to do well and thank you that they are your chosen people that made way for your son to be our savior, Lord. And we don't want to live in the cycle of sin, Lord, and yet we don't have to. Not that we'll ever be perfect, but we shouldn't give up on our pursuit of holiness, Lord. Lord, whenever there is sin, let us be reminded that it did cost something. It always, sin always costs something. Chiefly, it cost your son to die on the cross for our sins. So, Lord, let us be glad in you. Let us rejoice. Let us uh, consider how um, we can be better for our families to point them and ourselves to you. Let us draw a, a line. Let us be open and honest. Let us say what is good according to what you say is good and what is bad according to what you say is bad. Let us find time of rest. Let it not be a legalistic thing, but let it be a time of rest. Let us help us through your spirit give you our best, whatever that looks like. Thank you for the forgiveness when we fall short of that, Lord. And Lord, whenever we have things and stuff and finances and just whatever it is that we have, that we give it over to you the best, Lord. It came from you in the first place, Lord. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for your son and thank you that we can live in freedom from sin because of him and that we didn't earn it or deserve it, but yet you humbly gave yourself over for the ransom of many to atone and to forgive our sins. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.